The Last Flight of the Vauxhall Aeronaut Charles Green, the Vauxhall Aeronaut, also sometimes known as the Battersea Balloonist, was in fact born in Clerkenwell, in Goswell Street to be precise. He became known as the Vauxhall Aeronaut because many of his most famous flights started in the area called Spring Gardens. Now, Vauxhall has had a long history of lighter-than-air travel. Even up until quite recently, you could go up in a hot-air balloon there. You paid a tenner, got in the basket, the balloon went up in the air, stayed up for a bit, you looked around, and then it came down again. It was a sort of lo-fi version of the London Eye, but actually quite good fun. They stopped it after the Twin Towers affair in New York. Depending on who you talk to, this was because the English Prime Minister at the time, himself a noted specialist in hot air, feared that the balloon might be hijacked, and in a slow-motion version of 9-11, crashed into Big Ben. Well, ever since Guy Fawkes, British politicians have been narcissistic and paranoid but of course this was ludicrous. I'm not sure how accurate you can be with a dirigible, but I imagine you'd be far more likely to get snared in the spokes of the London Eye, or burst and collapse on colliding with the spike of the Oxford Tower. And it would have been very difficult for a bunch of Islamic radicals to rehearse such a flight. After all, there aren't many balloon flight simulators and the ballooning society is quite picky about who it allows in. The less dramatic but more likely reason they stopped the rides is that the grey men in the MI5 building at Foxhall feared they were being used for espionage. You see, the balloon would go up, and theoretically, somebody in the basket would be able to see over the railway bridge into the upper floors of the Secret Service building make notes on what was going on, and then innocently descend again, and repeat this several times a day. Whether there would have actually been anything going on, or just a lot of people playing darts, watching James Bond films and picking their noses, I'll leave you to decide. Now, unfortunately, there's hardly a trace of a sporting past in Vauxhall, apart from a large green bump and what looks like a few buried bits of machinery behind the Royal Vauxhall Tavern. But back in the 19th century, Spring Gardens, also known as the Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens, was a leisure destination of some renown and varying respectability. I've got to say straight off, the gardens did not get their name from a local well or spring. It's true there are some underground waterways in the area, but the spring in Spring Gardens was an ironclad example of Victorian engineering and beautiful to boot. You see, in addition to his aeronautical skills, Charles Green designed several devices to assist with ballooning, such as the grappling hook and the trailing rope. The spring, or the Vertical Dirigible Propulsion Initiator, to give it its official name, was a huge coiled iron spiral retracted by a mechanical winch or by a steam engine. On top of the spiral was an oak and brass platform upon which the balloon and its basket were docked prior to a flight. 
When everything was in place, the aeronaut made a signal, usually the dropping of a silk handkerchief, and a lever was pulled, releasing the spring and propelling the balloon upward into the air. Anybody who's been in the hot air balloon will tell you that this isn't really necessary, but Mr. Green's invention had several advantages. First of all, it had the effect of getting the balloon swiftly up above head height. This was sensible, as there had been a number of occasions when ladies' bonnets had been knocked off or caught in the basket, dragging the screaming owner up into the air with some very unpleasant consequences. Secondly, it saved embarrassing incidents, such as that when a certain well-known, rather pompous, aristocratic and self-styled amateur aeronaut embarked upon his first voyage and flew straight into the nearby bandstand. Thirdly, perhaps most importantly, it provided a dramatic beginning to a flight. This was felt essential to entertain a paying crowd. Onlookers loved the drama of the spring, and many young gallants made attempts to hijack it in order to propel themselves or each other above the London smog. But alas, like an untethered airship, I've drifted away from my subject. Let us return to the story of Charles Green. His father, Mr. Green Sr., was a seller of fruit and vegetables, and young Charles would have followed in his footsteps and never taken wing but for the intervention of fate in the person of a certain Mr. Rose, a fellow denizen of Clerkenwell. This young gentleman was well known in the area, both for his eccentricities and his apparent wealth. Charles had climbed over the garden wall of the Rose House near the Church of St. James one afternoon to rescue a toy balloon he'd been given by his father. He had been surprised in his attempt to retrieve it by Mr. Rose, who, far from being cross, was amused by the boy's valour. Most of the locals avoided the house partly because of the peculiarities of its inhabitants, and partly because Mr. Rose kept a pet lion. As Charles grew up, he became fascinated by maps and globes, of which there were several in Mr. Rose's possession, and under his encouragement, he became both a dreamer of faraway places and an inveterate inventor. This caused some friction with his father, whose intentions for his son were clearly earthy, and it has to be said that Mr. Rose seemed slightly mischievous and unusually interested in this respect. Some have said that he held a strong affection for Charles's mother, a very pretty young woman who had died shortly after giving birth. It became evident that in her son's case, Green by name did not mean green grocer by nature. And so, aided by the finance and tutelage of his mentor, Charles made the journey from banana to balloon, from vegetable to dirigible, with the assistance and influence of various London notables that Mr. Rose introduced him to. Charles literally was off. His first flight was from Green Park, later named after him. It was in 1821, and over the following years he made many, many further flights, some alone, some accompanied, some by night, some by day, many at great risk. But then this was in the days before that peculiar creature, 
the health and safety officer had been devised. Charles's great breakthrough came with the invention of the coal gas method of providing lighter than air vapour. In this he was almost certainly assisted by Mr Rose, who had an unusual, almost alchemical knowledge of such things. The coal gas was both easy to generate, cheaper and much safer to use than the previous hydrogen method. He designed and built several balloons which utilised it, the most famous of which, the great Nassau, was a truly beautiful creature, regularly sprung from its dock at Vauxhall. It seems strange to some that Charles was never accompanied on his voyages by his benefactor, Mr Rose. They were unaware that that gentleman was unsuited to travel and only rarely journeyed far from his area of the city. He did, however, compensate for this by taking a very active, vicarious interest in the voyages and destinations of the great Nassau. In a famous painting which still hangs in the National Portrait Gallery, he can be seen with Charles hosting a gathering of ballooning enthusiasts at his house in Clerkenwell. He only ever requested one thing in return for his patronage, that Charles take with him a certain Edward Spencer as co-pilot. It was never clear what the connection was between Mr Rose and Mr Spencer, but a grateful Charles was only too happy to assent. The pair made many voyages together, during which Mr Spencer made copious notes and observations on behalf of Mr Rose. At times, Charles thought it was almost appeared. At times, Charles thought it was almost as if he was searching for something from the air. But their relationship ended unfortunately and rather abruptly. Spencer was held responsible for some, for the tragic incident whereby the amateur parachutist, Robert Cocking, was taken up in the Great Nassau to test his new parachute and fell to his death from 5,000 feet. The test failed, obviously. Foul play was never proved and the blame was laid at the door of poor mathematics, but it was suggested that perhaps Cocking had been docking where he shouldn't. With Mr Spencer and with subsequent companions, Charles set new records and travelled further and faster than anyone before. He became an international hero, fated by rogues and royalty alike. His great ambition and great dream was to cross the Atlantic by balloon, a journey he fully believed possible and planned many times, but to his great and lasting sadness was never able to attempt. The years flew by. His eyes began to fail. And after a long and illustrious career, he was finally prevailed upon by his anxious family to hang up his grappling hook for the last time. So in 1852, at the age of 67, he reluctantly made a final voyage from Vauxhall before retiring to a life of obscurity in Tufnell Park. There... With wings clipped, he was most unhappy, truth to tell. You see, these flying types, the poor Eternis, the Icaruses of this world, cannot settle with any enthusiasm to the regular terrestrial routines. 
Days spent flying kites on Hampstead Heath or cloud-gazing at Crystal Palace are no substitute for those spent wandering the lofty astral planes. There can be no real return to Earth for such folk. Still, between grief over the premature death of his son George, intending to be an aeronaut himself, and the incessant nagging of his wife Martha, he remained sadly grounded. The days came and the days went, heavy with the gravity of earthbound existence. Then, suddenly, one bright morning in early 1870, a few weeks after the death of Martha, out of the blue, Charles received a note from his old friend Mr. Rose. They'd become rather estranged after the cocking affair, and Charles was rather surprised to discover that Mr. Rose was even still alive. The note contained a remarkable suggestion, accompanied by a picture of the great Nassau, his dearly loved balloon. The Nautilus of so many epic journeys was now sadly tamed and tethered at Vauxhall. For entirely financial reasons, it had been sold to a businessman who used it as a means of charging young gentlemen to give their ladies the thrill of a quick up-and-down trip. An investment. An investment, no doubt, made by them in expectation of some other up-and-down activity in the pleasure gardens later. The note was borne by none other than Charles's old co-pilot, Edward Spencer. And after an emotional reconciliation between the two, it seemed to have its intended effect. Once an aeronaut, always an aeronaut. Charles was galvanised for one last adventure. After much planning and consultation with Mr Rose, who was to fund the proceedings, an evening came in March when Charles and Mr Spencer set off by carriage for Vauxhall loaded with equipment. They had an accomplice, a certain Sonny Blake, who assisted them in neutralising the night watchman and in preparing the great Nassau for a journey. When this was eventually achieved, the spring was coiled silently by hand, and Charles climbed onto the platform and up into the basket. Mr. Spencer attempted to do the same, but due to his age and infirmity was unable to make it despite the best efforts of the other two. Charles would have to make this flight alone. The old friends said goodbye to each other, with tears in their eyes. All past differences were forgotten. Only old aeronauts could understand the pain of such a parting. But time was running short. With a heavy heart, but a lightness of spirit, Charles dropped his best silk handkerchief for the last time. Mr. Spencer pulled a lever, and the balloon was sprung into the air. As he and Blake watched anxiously, the great Nassau made a rather shaky ascent. It took Charles some time to regain his old skills, but as he did so, he directed the balloon up and off into the London night. He headed first northwards and then eastwards, flying over Lambeth Palace where the bishop saw the balloon from a tower window and guiltily leapt from his bed, believing it to be an avenging angel. Over Parliament and past Big Ben, Charles floated, past the rookeries of Alsace from Whitefriars, circling the city that had given him birth, 
up to Clerkenwell and then back down again, bowing once to St Paul's before recrossing the Thames. There, on the south bank, on a high roof, standing with his pet lion by his side, was the tall figure with a lamp. It was none other than Charles' old friend and mysterious mentor, Mr Rose. He'd come for this very special occasion on a rare trip away from his own neighbourhood. Charles paused and hovered above. The two looked at each other long and silently, until eventually Mr Rose saluted. It was one of only five times that gentleman has been said to have tears in his eyes behind those green tinted glasses. Charles saluted back. The lion roared a great farewell. The balloon rose, headed south, and passed from London. Charles steered a course on into Surrey and Sussex. With a fair wind behind him, he reached the channel in a couple of hours and turned westward. Early morning fishermen saw him glide silently along the coast past Hampshire, Dorset and Devon towards Cornwall. Then, as the sun rose, the great Nassau finally left Land's End and headed out over the Atlantic before disappearing over the horizon into the west. It was never seen again. Postscript If the true nature of these events were known, Charles would have been awarded the status of missing person, and his estate would have been frozen, depriving his successors of the fruits of his aerial labours. To prevent this, Mr Rose devised a plan implemented by Spencer and Blake. A new maid was employed at the house in Tufnell Park. On her first day at work, she arrived to find a dead body in her master's bed. It's probably best not to inquire too closely into the source of this substitute. This she duly reported to the authorities. And in the absence of identification of Mrs Green and Green Jr., both of whom were also dead, Charles was buried with all due pomp and circumstance, under a very nice headstone in the grave at Highgate Cemetery. You can go and see it if you like. <laughs>